0: Thunder, we rifle and loot, drink up, me hearties, yo-ho We kidnap and ravage and don't give a hoot Drink up, me hearties,
1: yo-ho Yo-ho, yo-ho, a pirate's life for me we extort, we don't Ahoy, me outside. podcast listeners Join us at the Three Men and Retrospective Podcast As we run a shot across the bow And review the entire Pirates of the Caribbean film cities
0: Drink up, me hearties, yo-ho the city, we're
1: really Listen in as myself and me two mates, Garrett and Matt, walk the plank and parlay every piece of this Disney franchise that has made over four and a half billion in
0: price.
1: So strap yourselves in, grab the rum, and scupper ye headphones. Percolated media is fixing the pillage airwaves
0: right now. Bring up me, Hardy Joe. Yo ho, yo ho, a power life for me. A toast to Paris.
2: City, really Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides, released May 20th, 2011. Budget of $379 million with a box office take of $1.046 billion. Jesus. And this movie was directed by Rob Marshall. New director, same star, same writers, same giant budget as the previous movie. We waited four years for the fourth installment, and a lot changed. In the four years between the third movie and this one. But let's take everyone back to our thoughts on the third movie. All three of us gave it the same score, which is a rarity on these airwaves. Mm -hmm. We all thought that, you know, it was problematic, but it did tie up everything to where the first three movies do feel like one story. And it opened the door for potential new stories, but it didn't necessarily set anything up directly. So when you guys heard that this one was coming out, what were your both expectations and your desire to go see it?
1: Mine was slim and none. I felt like swimming in the shallow waters at this point. I remember at World's End just not enjoying it enough, had so many questions. I think I enjoyed it much more when we discussed it. But it was so much that I didn't need to go back into it. I was over Johnny Depp, just over it. And not to mention, even at the parks, it took one of my favorite rides, and the shoehorning of Jack into it even soured me even more. As much as I've really liked the first one, enjoyed the second one more than I remembered, third one was lukewarm. I didn't despise it. I was over it. I didn't need another one. The story was tied up with a bow, and my sails had many, many holes in it,
0: and I wasn't willing to set sail.
2: So yeah, your ship was a little rocky. Garrett, were you part of the punt in the same boat as Adam?
0: Pretty much. And after that World's End, it was said by everybody. Orlando Bloom, Keira Knightley, by Gore Verbinski. Everybody said, this is it. We're done. And then Johnny Depp had a series of films. Alice in Wonderland, very successful. I don't know how that movie made over a billion dollars, but somehow it did. Public Enemies, me and Matt discussed it. Not a bad movie, but it didn't make that much. Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus gained notoriety pretty much just for Keith Ledger's death. And then came The Tourist, which is a movie I saw in theaters and is literally one of the worst movies ever made. Johnny Depp, Angelina Jolie, it is god-awful. And it didn't make a fucking dime. And then, lo and behold, a little after that movie came out, they announced that they were doing on Stranger Tides. And at this point, I was already the cynical asshole that I am known as today. And I looked, and I'm like, oh, somebody needs a paycheck. And... Yes, he made $55 million on this movie when all was said and done. And I was not excited, honestly. Like you guys said, I mean, when that trilogy was announced, I said on those podcasts, bring it on. I love these Pirates movies. And even at World's End, I didn't really like it. But the final third, I really did like And I thought it ended, as you said, Matt, on a decent note. Let's not go anywhere. You've made over, what, $2 billion at this point. But money talks. Here comes Depp and we have ourselves a sequel without Gore Verbinski and I could not be less excited going into this film. So the tide of cynicism hit me also like a tsunami.
2: At the point that this came out, I was burned out on Johnny Depp, not exclusively to the Pirates movies, just in general. I don't care for any of those movies that Garrett talked about in between Pirates 3 In this, I am still baffled that Alice in Wonderland made all that much money, as he alluded to, but I do think the 3D component is a big player. It was really the first one post-Avatar that they really advertised as, oh, you have to go see this in 3D. You're right about The Tourist, but the development of this movie actually goes further back than that movie. So I think it was a factor as far as his salary, but while Jerry Bruckheimer did say, yep, after three, we're done... The screenwriting duo of Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio were ready to start working on a script, but much like a lot of movies we've covered, it ran into the ship known as the Writer's Strike in 2007-2008. Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, that, that big Writer's Strike that affected so many things.
2: Yeah, and we've talked about Quantum of Solace. We've talked about a bunch of the ones that were most affected, and Pirates was no different. So around 2009, Bruckheimer said they were going to do a Pirates 4- But they also wanted Verbinski back, which is where the Lone Ranger started its production history. That was sort of what Verbinski pitched. Not that we'll ever talk about the Lone Ranger because it's awful. But he said, I don't really want to do another Pirates movie, but let me do the Lone Ranger because his Bioshock movie that he was working on went kaput."
0: Oh, that's right. He developed that fucker for years. I remember that. Speaking of
2: curses, the cursed video game adaptation, at least on movies. You know, The Last of Us, we might talk about it at some point. But Bruckheimer was the one who suggested Rob Marshall, who was the director who took this over. And yeah, when I think of pirate movies and big spectacle, I look for the guy who directed Chicago.
0: *Chicago*, Memoirs of a Geisha and Nine. <laughs> I mean where is the swashbuckling in any of that i I mean i get it i really do get what bruckheimer's going for because if you're not going to get verbinski you got to go for a different aesthetic you can't look like you're copying it but that's kind of what made these movies famous if you could say it that way how do you go from gore verbinski to rob marshall but on the other hand how do you get the guy who made the ring to do the first pirates movie and then Sub- subsequently do the f- second two. So I know what Bruckheimer's going for, but man, that blew my mind when I heard that Rob Marshall was directing this.
2: Well, when you think about the way filmmakers, particularly directors, have to stage action movies, it's sort of a similar idea when you stage musical numbers because it's about rhythm, it's about timing, you have to get the shots right. They're kind of similar, but as an avid fan of Chicago that I am, and mm-hmm. the less said about Memoirs of a Geisha, I think that movie is drier than the size of a wooden ship and nine had one of the most star-studded casts I've ever seen for a movie that didn't deserve it. One of the stars by the way is in this movie, but not that I really cared about who was directing this. You could have put Spielberg on this and I would have said, "All right, is there any creative integrity in doing another pirates movie or did the mouse just get a hold of this and say, "Get the fuck back to work?" <gasps> Cuz that, that's Jesus that, that's that's what this was. The, the Mouse House wanted another pirate movie and they just found a director it's Johnny Depp literally came out at D23 in character and said, we are doing fourth Pirates movie coming out in the spring slash summer of
1: 2011.
2: And they said the title was On Stranger Tides and that they were actually going to be taking reference from the novel of the same name.
1: That's what's unbelievable. And it's literally called On Stranger Tides. And it's something that's been adapted multiple times where the book, well-known decades ago, but its adaptations have far surpassed it. But to me, it also shows just an utter lack of creative integrity in the writer's room. Not that all of these were brilliantly written. We've had issues. But just to say, hey, we're going to slap this together and we got to get to screen quickly, so let's get a book. It's amazing because I feel like what Disney did putting this back together with a actor who was done seemingly with the role is not so different than what we got just a year and a half later with Iron Man 3 and kind of doing the exact same thing there with an actor that was done with the role, was going off into the sunset, and then just an utter castle full of gold bullion to get back in a suit.
0: Well, we just did the Sometimes They Come Back movies, and that third Sometimes They Come Back movie is like a whole nother story revolved around this one property. So what you're saying is they took this one story and they made this a sequel. How old is this book? Oh, 1987. 1987.
1: Okay. Wow. Oh, yeah, Not hugely old, but yeah, I mean, I don't know how many pirate lore books are being done in the 80s and 90s, but if you look at, I don't know, I guess airport bookstore fair, you don't have a lot to pull from, but they sure did. And they had mined
2: Treasure Islands numerous times, so you couldn't do, like, Long yeah. John Silver in this movie or, or anything of that sort, although they had taken certain elements of that the marooning and X marks the spot, the black spot, a lot of things from that book have been in these movies. But the one pull was they said Blackbeard was going to be in this movie, which is a pull from the story. And that was the interesting thing. I liked that they were taking... The most famous pirate in existence, as far as reality goes, and making him, as the trailer show, a supernatural component, which is nothing new for this series, but I like that they were taking historical reference.
1: And if you were going to name one pirate, if you were going to ask anybody, name a pirate, before these movies came out, you were going to name Blackbeard. Now kids today probably think Jack Sparrow was a real pirate. You got the pirate that everybody could speak to in Blackbeard. So if you were going to turn these, which is what I thought, into standalone episodes, almost anthology pirate stories, it, on paper, is a good way to go, that you're going to introduce Blackbeard to rev this back up. you got to up the stakes of who your villain is, and you don't get much more villainous than Blackbeard.
0: Yeah, they think that Jack Sparrow is based on the real pirate Keith Richards.
1: <laughs> Three times if it shows up.
2: <laughs> yeah, right. So production happened. For the record, this is the most expensive movie ever made. That budget again, three hundred and seventy-nine million, <laughs> broke its predecessor. And look, I know Johnny Depp commanded fifty-five million, but where the fuck did the other three hundred plus million go? Because the movie looks good, but there's nothing that matches the spectacle of any of the previous three movies. More so, two and three. Um, there's no, a ton
0: and- of mermaid CGI.
1: Yeah, there's also tons of Disney paying itself to market itself. That in yeah. Hollywood math. They're paying themselves to develop themselves to then market themselves to themselves. To me, it's always appalling when you get a single person who's going to take 15, 20, 25% of a film's budget. Not to mention the insurance costs that this movie incurred because of his antics in Hawaii, which were vast. But it does not look, I don't think, at any point, is. Grandiose is what we've already talked about.
2: One other thing that really caused this budget to blow out of proportion was the post schedule. Typically, that's about a 40-week turnaround time. They had 22 weeks. So they cut it in half, which means you have a director supervising the editing process during filming. You have all the expenditures they paid in English currency when they were shooting. And, of course, Johnny Depp starting to turn into the Johnny Depp that has soured the reputation of himself and has turned a lot of people against him for some of
0: his bullshit antics that he did on this production. He had antics on this production, huh? I watched a couple of those behind-the-scenes things on Disney Plus and the Blu-ray I have, and it didn't seem like they were talking bad about him. We're not going as far as Jared Leto now, are we? No,
1: there's nothing of that. This is the time, and for people that want to come at me, I don't take social media at face level, so I have read factual court documents. But this is literally where he wasted millions of dollars by not showing up on set, not showing up prepared, doing other stuff, and leaving this entire production to sit around waiting for Johnny to show up time and time and time again.
0: On a $55 million salary, that's fucking insane.
1: Yeah, this is when he brought people to party with him. It's amazing because you can see where this movie is filmed through a lot of it. And it's when he decided they were going to go to Hawaii and he was going to party on Disney's dime if they wanted him back this bad. And it's exactly what he did.
0: That's insane because... I think I counted six scenes that he's not in in this entire two-and-a-half-hour fucking movie. So he must have held up the entire goddamn production.
1: You know what? I got notes, and I'll discuss when we get into it, because I think they had to shoot around him, and I think Johnny e. Depp is an insert shot in 80% of this film. Mm.
2: Well, speaking of insert shots, as Garrett mentioned, Kieran Knightley and Orlando Bloom both said no thank you to coming back. Yeah, they were done. Wow,
1: <laughs> which is unbelievable. I mean, you know that they're not going to get 55000000 million. They're probably not going to get $10 million, But both of those actors they each had their own movie to kind of steal some of the shine away and to me it's amazing that they're not being brought back but also who they're being brought back in lieu of you're gonna go from karen knightley to penelope cruz that's a change of direction
0: yeah and it's not like their careers were shining around this time too so it must have been hell on those productions for them to say we're not coming back either that or they both just said we want to do other stuff which could have been well, Orlando Bloom decided to bang Katy Perry, which, uh, good for him, but it cost this movie.
1: And I could see Orlando Bloom had been in two massive franchises at that point. I could see him wanting a break. And I could see, I mean, Karen Knightley's done so many period pieces. I could see it, except that when Disney has something that works, they will milk it to the bone and they'll spend $10 million to earn 11000000 million. They're not about the low margins that they can win.
2: So speaking of milking things, the movie opens with a minute plus of logos, which I am. <laughs> this is a trend I hate in modern movies where you have the distributor, yep. you have the distributor of the distribution company, you have the director's company, you have the producer's company. It, it's mm-hmm. nauseating to watch. It's the first time, too.
1: It was obvious this time because all the other films kind of got right into it. You have the Disney logo, you had the title card, and this one is literally the family guy joke of just production company after production company.
2: The movie does throw you right in, although not necessarily in the way that you expect because we don't open on any principal characters or anything of that sort it's just two fishermen deadliest catch 15th century (laughs) where they pull up a load and they find a fisherman who is somehow still alive although based on being in that net he clearly should have drowned and they bring him to spain so we're opening up in a new location that we've never seen before brought before the king and they find out that this guy knows something about the Fountain of Youth. Either he's been there or knows about it because he has something on his person that is tied into it. So this was the big cliffhanger at the end of the third movie, so to speak. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I was just about to say that this isn't something that they just pull out of thin air. This is something that was talked about at the end of that last movie. So they are kind of pulling from their own lore here, but the fact that they made a whole movie about it, I will say that is intriguing to me. But if you're going to do that, Why not just call it Pirates of the Caribbean and the Fountain of Youth? Why do you have to go through On Stranger Tides and make it this obscure what exactly you're going for? Because it's shown right away. We're going after the Fountain of Youth here, just like we talked about at the end of that last film. Especially because both, I should say, all three of the
2: previous movies, their subtitles explain what the movie is actually about. Exactly. This one is just a throwaway title, so to speak. And it makes this one and the next one break the pattern. I think it's more ridiculous when we get to five, but that's a conversation we'll have next week. We then transfer from Spain to England, where Jack Sparrow is about to be put on trial, and everyone is very jovial about the prospect of watching someone get hung, which always cracks me up because these are supposed to be city folk, the heart of London, and again, it looks like... Fucking lame Miseraf.
1: Like, like. Oh my God. There is more powdered wigs here than it is just for men convention.
0: Adam, I thought of you because you said in that first movie that there's nothing that turns me off more than a movie that has a ton of powdered wigs. Guess what? You're going to have a ton of them here. Like <sighs> more than the last two movies combined. <laughs> they have Jack Sparrow
2: held captive, or so we think, because they bring him before the judge. And it turns out that Gibbs is the one who is being put on trial. And they think he's Jack Sparrow, even though in the previous movies there are wanted posters of Jack Sparrow and he looks nothing (laughs) like them.
1: In this movie, we have a Jack Sparrow poster because Jack Sparrow is recruiting and it's an image of Jack Sparrow. We know what Jack Mm -hmm. Sparrow looks like. The courts know what Jack Sparrow looks like. Mr. Gibbs, you, sir, are no Jack Sparrow. Captain Jack Sparrow.
2: Well, I don't even think Jack Sparrow is Jack Sparrow anymore because I talked about how Johnny Depp started to change the trajectory of his career thanks to these movies. And it's a big red pirate flag that we start off with him in a funny outfit impersonating someone else, which is a great summation of his acting for the last decade plus.
0: Let me tell you, as I said on Curse of the Black Pearl, I loved Depp in 2003. He could do no wrong between Blow, Hell, I even like From Hell. Not a lot of people like that movie. He took really ambitious projects After Curse of the Black Pearl, he did that Robert Rodriguez sequel, which is okay. But, like you said, Matt, we've said it the entire 10 years we've been doing this this podcast, and we're finally getting to talk about it here because he's the main star of this movie. His career took a major step in the wrong direction after that movie because he did not take as many daring roles. He didn't take any daring roles. He went and he, he got in makeup, he hung out with his buddy Burton, and they did one movie after another that was not good. And here he's rewriting lines to fit his scenes. And like I said, there are, I counted six. Six total scenes that Sparrow's not here. The reason curse of the black pearl worked. the reason dead man's chest worked is because he is a great supporting character he is there to say a funny line every once in a while move the plot along maybe get the main characters to look at each other in a different way and help their arcs here he has his own arc he is the center of the story and this is what i thought we were going to get in that second movie and we're getting it here i do not like jack sparrow in this movie he takes up too much of the screen a little of him goes a very long way it was very entertaining in those first two movies. But since then, it's gone way too far. And this has nothing to do with Johnny Depp. And this has nothing to do with what he's done. This has nothing to do with free Depp, free Depp. It has nothing to do with any of that. I'm just looking at it as the character. It's way too much of him. And this is coming from somebody who was a huge fan.
2: Adam, are you in a similar state of disillusionment with how Jack Sparrow is handled in this movie?
1: What it is to me, it's kind of what I discussed a little bit. I don't think he's playing off of anybody in this film except on rare occasions. If in this entire courtroom scene, you got Jack, he's the judge and everything else. Pay attention. When he's on screen, when he's being shot, nobody else is being shot with him. I think he's being shot alone. I think it's diminishing his performance. I don't think he's having fun going back and forth with some of the other ones. Jack and Gibbs, I've enjoyed seeing those two together. And we get them a little bit in this film, but in this one here it's shot and cut in a way that they're never on screen together in this scene until i think the very end and there's just something kind of missing and it is apparent right here right off the bat that it just feels off a little bit it feels lesser it feels i don't know just not as enjoyable this jack feels like an imposter
0: it feels too much well
2: it's the ultimate example of too much of a good thing this is the one on Stranger Tides, where the tide shifts to these movies are now the Jack Sparrow show and everyone else is a borderline background extra. Because even in this scene that Adam's talking about where, yes, he's the only one in his shots, despite this being a crowded courthouse. It's in his lines when other people are talking, he's not talking over them or it's not as rowdy as it should be. It's not starting off on a good note because, again, like I said, it's just Jack Sparrow now playing dress up,
1: and he doesn't even feel like a character anymore. Going into this one, my thought was, ooh, I think this was my favorite of the sequels. So I was looking forward quite a bit when I sat down to put this on. Um, And there's some parts of this I really, really like that we're going to talk about that I'm still excited for. But it's amazing that we're five minutes in, and I'm just kind of like, (laughs) uh-oh, my boat is listing.
2: Gibbs and Jack get in the car, pay off the driver. And they start talking about, yeah, where'd you go? I'm looking for the Fountain of Youth. And they set up this notion that there's someone out there impersonating Jack Sparrow. Well, if you go to Disneyland, you'll see about 200 of them on a daily basis.
0: <laughs> or go to any Comic-Con. I was going to say, go to any convention, you'll see him.
2: Oh, wow, we're getting meta pretty early. But in a nice bit of continuity, they have the charts from the previous movie that they're still adhering to. But turns out that there was a double cross of the double cross because the driver has been paid off twice this time by the British Army, specifically under King George, to take Jack. Gibbs goes back to prison. But much like the third one, this is way too overcomplicated. Why can't you just have them get captured?
1: Because he's got to have his buddy show up as a king. Oh. <laughs> Goddamn.
0: You're right. It's way too overcomplicated. And you know what? I'm going to say the subsequent action scene, I think, is decent. There's some fun stuff going on. But at this point, we've already had too much dip. <laughs> We're not 20 minutes in. And having him being on this carriage, it's fun. But after I've already thought that him dressing up and doing everything he's doing has been too much.
2: Yeah, and speaking of too much, they spend two minutes of him just doing stupid slapstick with him in the chair, trying to get the pastry, before anyone else is in the room. So this is a great case for Adam's argument that Johnny Depp shot scenes by himself because the production was, oh, you're going to wait for me. Yep. Eventually, the king does walk in, and it's Uncle Vernon from Harry Potter, which surprised me. And he tells Jack Sparrow that we need to, we being the British, have to find the Fountain of Youth before the Spanish do. So, much like the second one... We're setting up a chase component where there is this object and everyone's out to get it. But while they did not get Karen Knightley and Orlando Bloombeck, they did somehow get Jeffrey Rush to come back. Although this time he is now under the employ of the British monarch as a privateer. So basically he has the pirate equivalent of a license to kill, where he can still effectively do piracy as long as he reports to the king. And he's missing a
1: leg. If there's anybody that I feel bad for, it's Jeffrey Rush. And I think this was because somebody knew that he was as enjoyable and fun to watch on screen as anybody. Him and the employee of Britain of the Crown and just what they have him do for the first five-sixths of this film, man, there's, hey, it sucks that I can't enjoy Barbosa for the majority of this film because I've it's really ed- liked him in all the <laughs> other ones.
0: Yeah, it's anger-inducing, because even in that third one, he was enjoyable when he came on screen. Here, he feels like he was dragged. He feels like somebody somebody had a debt to pay. Like, he knows where the bodies are buried, so here he is trying to pay that debt. And I'm with you, Adam. When he's on screen, he doesn't look like he's having nearly as much fun as he did on those first two. It's anger-inducing, because I love this character, and here, I don't.
2: So, I disagree with both of you. I actually like him in this movie, but it's largely because... They use him in a way to actually give Gibbs more screen time, which I appreciate. But I think you could have gotten to the end of this movie where he reverts back to who he was a hell of a lot sooner. Because mm-hmm. we we all know that he's the ultimate opportunist, and he's only doing this to get back to a position of piracy because he tells Jack, oh, yeah, I lost a black pearl. And I love how Jack's like, you did what? <laughs>
1: which is we- one more mystery that gets weaving in through this entire film. Like, oh my God, there is so many little weaves that they want to weave through this entire thing. and These threads get threadbare.
2: The is going to guide the expedition, but because Jack has the charts, he says, come with me. And we then get to a scene that Garrett alluded to with the, he escapes the palace. He's jumping back and forth on
1: these carriages, one of which... Why is Judy Dench here? I had to stop and go, is that Dane Judy Dench? Yes, it is.
0: No shit. I didn't even see her.
1: Yep. She's the one when he steals the earring, when he kind of buries his face, and she's like, oh. oh.
0: oh that's Judy Dench. Oh my God. I did not put that together. Clearly, someone called in a favor. That's the only way to explain that.
1: I would love if they would have put this in a time where she could be a queen to Jack Sparrow. Oh, God, you could have some fun, because she she is is not above just having fun and going silly. And I could have used a lot of her. But that was a pleasant surprise cameo.
2: So you wanted a Shakespeare love reunion, because Jeffrey Rush is also in this movie.
1: Yep. Between that and a lot, I'm ready.
2: (laughs) So clearly, Depp and Rush must have called in a favor to get her. So Jack manages to escape, largely because his father just happens to be here, shoots a guard... And it was cute in the third one. It is painful to watch him in this movie because he is obviously on something. To the point to where when they cut and he is gone, I thought he just passed out and they kept rolling.
0: Yeah, to be, he steps on, and I said last week, there were tons of stories about him coming to set drunk, not being able to stay up straight for his lines. He was a pain in the ass to work with then, and they bring him back, which I didn't fucking remember. And you're right, Matt, he looks even more out of it than he was last week.
1: You know, the only person that he shares a screen with is Deb. It's kind of like these two got fucked up while they were getting in Aaron makeup, and they put him in a room and filmed it. Daddy Captain exposition here for no reason, and then fades away, and wow, it doesn't fi- Last time it was okay. Is he the king? Is he not? I didn't mind it. I thought it was kind of cool as a nod for who he based it on. But this kind of countermands what he was, who he is, and his relationship with Jack. Because they weren't close, you could tell that they had friction there. So... He's just here because somebody went, oh, fuck, I guess we got to explain some things of what they need by the end of this film.
2: Yeah, because it can't be as straightforward as you drink from the Fountain of Youth and that's it. There has to be a ritual where he talks about you need two chalices, you need the tear of a mermaid. I'm like, why do these sequels always feel the need to overcomplicate the most straightforward of
0: plots? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Adam, you hit it for me isn't that it was cute last week. Yes, it went too far last week and we mentioned that. But still, just the novelty of the man that Depp based his performance on showing up playing his dad. It was cool. Here he's here just like you said for exposition. Like there's no real reason for him to be here.
2: And
1: why does he At have end? the answers? Yeah. yeah. Clearly he has not been to the fountain of youth. No, <laughs> I mean, so he's not going to team up with his son to go do it. He's not going to. There is no reason that he's here Mm -hmm. other than Johnny Depp got Disney to pay to bring Keith Richards to Hawaii for a month.
2: Jack goes up to a bunch of proprietors at this establishment, says, I'm looking for a crew. They don't think he's the real Jack Sparrow because they just talked to the real Jack Sparrow. So Jack runs into him. This room with candlelight somehow is able to expertly mask the imposter's face Throughout every single shot.
1: Well, so much of this film is shot by Ray Charles. I mean, it's amazing. I didn't realize he was a cinematographer. Wow.
2: This one's dreary. It's
0: ugly.
1: Paul W.S. Anderson loves the cinematography in this film. That's how bad it is.
0: <laughs> wow. Shot across the bow. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I mentioned that Gore Verbinski filmed those last two sequels more like horror films and that they were kind of tinted at certain colors. Sometimes they were green. Sometimes they were yellow. You guys are right. This is plain. This is boring. This is not shot in any way that's exciting. And I've never seen Chicago. I can't comment on it, but everything I've seen of it, it looks beautiful. So what they did with this, I have no idea.
1: I'll say, and I think Matt alluded to it earlier, I love Chicago. It's going to be fun when we get to that some point when Matt and I force it. And it's amazing that this is the same director because you could not have two movies that look so different.
2: No. And it can get away with a competently shot swordplay, but I think this movie in particular, you really feel the absence of Rubinsky. I do think it would be maybe not considerably better from a storytelling perspective because I find this plot to be too simple, but at the same time, there's too many small elements that they feel like they have to keep insisting upon their abortions.
0: Mm-hmm. Verbinski was here last week, but what Verbinski did that was so good was he petered out some of the nonsense that those scripts had, and he had to get to the point of the story. And what Mar- Rob Marshall does here is no better. In fact, I think it's a little worse than what Verbinski did, because Verbinski gave each and every scene a little bit of personality. Now, last week, I didn't like the majority of that personality, but it recovered towards the end of that film. This is starting off on a very bad note because there's no personality here, and I'm angry at this point.
2: So your anger burns like these candles that are on display here in this scene. But yeah. <laughs> Jack disarms the assailant, and it turns out not only is it indeed an imposter, it's a woman, and it's Penelope Cruz who... She was sort of the big get of this movie because very prestigious career, how they get her husband to be in the next movie for God's sake. So I like seeing her. They, They basically make her the Bond girl, past history, can you trust her can you not trust her she can fend for herself if she's the substitute for well I can't even say she's the substitute for Kira Knightley because there's someone that they they fucking try to make a new Will in Elizabeth later on oh god Boy. Um, but mm-hmm. I think she's kind of the she's one of the only people in this movie who gives it any sense of life or energy
0: yeah this had to have been a favor from Depp because she was in Blow those years ago and she got a lot of great notice for that movie and I rewatched that movie recently it holds up very well she's great in it and I hold Depp very high on that as well he is very good in that movie too. Here, you're right. I thought more of Bond in this movie than I have in any of the others, and that's a great comparison because she does feel kind of like the Bond girl who's here to get in trouble. And yes, yeah, she has spunk, but not nearly as much as Kira Knightley did.
1: She's good, and I remember enjoying her so much more. She's good, but where I get taken out is by the end of the film. They're back and forth, and the double cross, triple cross, quadruple cross ends up just happening so many times. They replay the same beat from this moment throughout the entire rest of the film. I think she's good. I think she changes direction as much as her breast size changes because she was pregnant by the end of this film, and you can tell when she's shot from chest up as opposed to full body. (laughs) But I think she's a good addition. Though it's the problem with there are too many aspects at play, and I think they brought her in because you were going to have a Spanish side going for the Fountain of Youth. So they need to thin it out. This either needed to be the Crown versus spain going for it or it needed to be jack and blackbeard versus the crown there's too many elements that are starting a play
0: and you said matt we have way more story here not as much as last week because last week had a lot of fucking story and it was a mess this one has a lot of story but the runtime doesn't justify what they're trying to tell here not that i wanted more of it but it's not really distributed and edited as well as in that first film
2: so angelica and jack fight off a bunch of guards They escape through a trap door, but Jack is sedated by a dart. So we're literally using the same gag that they captured Will with in the second movie. Mm -hmm. And they continue that trend because, like Will, Jack is shanghaied onto
1: another ship. Yep. And he's been asleep for five days. That's yeah, a hell like of a dark. this
2: movie sucks when it comes to explaining the passage of time. <laughs> it is amazing though that this
1: crew—I I just find it hard to believe—that nobody recognizes the famous Captain Jack Sparrow, including people on the ship who were brought in and recruited by Jack Sparrow. Exactly. Did nobody go? Hey, this looks like the guy that we signed <laughs> signed off with.
2: So Gibbs is about to be killed by Barbosa by being hung, but he tells him, "I can guide you to the Fountain." And he says, why not? Well, he burns the map, so he says, you have to trust me because I've memorized it. So whether or not he did this or not, he's just saving his own skin. I mean, look, if you're going to have these characters back, at least do something with them. So I appreciate Gibbs actually gets something to do in this movie instead of just being, like I alluded to earlier, the Michael Caine Alfred, where he's just the, well, fountain of knowledge. Yeah. Then cut to the Queen Anne's Revenge, which is Blackbeard's ship, which looks exactly like the Black Pearl and the Flying Dutchman. It's a a dark ship. (laughs) It is so hard to tell them apart.
0: It's so, yeah, I got lost in that.
1: I love the inclusion of the Queen Anne's Revenge, just because this is historical. That it was the Queen Anne, and Edward Teach, Blackbeard, won a battle, took over the ship, repaired it, and sailed it for the rest of his career as Queen Anne's Revenge. And from a historical aspect, and that's why I like Blackbeard. I fucking love that they included this ship the way they did.
0: I need to say something else because this was actually the first movie in the series to be distributed in 3D. And a lot of it was that bullshit post-conversion job. And the 3D, I remember seeing it in theaters. I, I did go see this in theaters, believe it or not. I think I just had literally nothing to do that weekend. So I was like, oh, the new Pirates is out. Let me just go see that. I went by myself. And I remember putting on those 3D glasses and the 3D not adding a goddamn thing. And apparently, I guess what they said was the effects were shot in 3D, but the actual film itself wasn't. The 3D added absolutely nothing. And this was around that time when so many of them were coming out in 3D. They were just dumbing down the form so to speak and uh, adding nothing to the actual movie itself did you guys see
2: this in 3d no because i had a couple weeks prior to this seen thor
0: oh 3D, christ and that that's put, right
2: that put me off seeing any post-conversion stuff unless people really advocated for it
1: mm-hmm. yep same
2: but nobody really advocates on the ship because everyone on blackbeard's crew is either shanghaied or zombies Yet another movie where half the crew is under some kind of spell, only this time it's voodoo. So I guess the Bond theme is continuing because this is straight out of Live and Let Die.
0: Yes. And, Adam, I have to ask this because you're the one, I think, who's the more the expert on this than the other two of us. Now, Verbinski, in all three of those films, added something from the ride into each of those. Do we have any of that here?
1: I'm trying to think. I think there's—I mean, definitely not the zombies. Blackbeard got— added to the ride and then got removed from the ride like a year later which is a shame but he was just projected on mist in a transfer area other than like a shot of somebody drinking in a certain way no there's no zombies on that ride there's not a queen anne's revenge on that ride everything that the ride took and did well in the first three there's none
0: of it here and those easter eggs were so fun to spot in those other films and that's something else that's missing here yeah I think that the the love that Verbinski brought to the franchise from that ride really showed in those three movies that he did. Even that third one. There's none of that here. We're just doing this to franchise it. And God, that pisses me off.
1: I just can't believe we have another undead crew that you can't kill.
0: Yeah. Recycling that. Yeah. This movie for being a standalone entry,
2: there's a lot of recycled shit that we've seen in the previous three movies, which I think is part of why there's a certain aspect, a lot in fact, that feels so redundant and diminishing returns when you watch this. There's Angelica and Oh god alright, so I have a pet peeve in movies. And we're really gonna talk about this with Star Wars. One of my least favorite story tropes are prophecies. Here we find out that the Blackbeard is terrified of a prophecy where he will be killed by a one legged man. And that's why he's after the fountain of youth. And I understand these movies are made for kids, but for God's sake, did you have to telegraph that so fucking early with Barbosa? <laughs>
0: The script here, like last week, is very, very messy, and they are straining to keep this contained, to keep this viable, and none of it makes any sense.
1: Isn't it enough that you have pirates and you have this old pirate that doesn't want to die and wants the Fountain of Youth? The Fountain of Youth is its own reward. You shouldn't have to have one more thing on top of it.
0: Yeah. And when you go back to that first film, what did we have? We had a ship and we had one undead crew and there was a fight for it. That was the crust of that movie. We have overcomplicated, overcomplicated. As you said, Adam, this is for kids. What kid is going to go to this and come out of it knowing what the fuck is going on?
1: And Barbosa wanting revenge just for the pearl being taken. That's enough. Yeah, exactly. You don't need one more layer.
2: Yeah, it's the same mistake that the third movie made, where people have straightforward motivations, but their allegiances keep changing, so it makes it harder to keep grasp of it. Barbosa and Gibbs realize that the Spanish are indeed closer than they are. So rather than just kill Gibbs and follow the Spanish, Barbosa just says, all right, we're just going to keep trucking along, because we have to add scenes to remember that these two are in the movie.
1: <laughs> okay, so they're on water. They look, and the Spanish are close enough that they see them through their eyeglass, and then we don't see them again until the family of this film. <laughs> Like, you're both going the same way. How do you not see each other the rest of the time? You needed to get rid of one group of people. Either get rid of the English or get rid of the Spanish. Fuck. They should have just gotten rid of the Spanish. Yeah. Yep. I mean, there's no reason other than, I don't know, maybe some desire that because of Ponce de Leon, you felt you needed to. But either that or Barbosa needed to decide that he was going to side with the Spanish, which would have been an insult to the English. They just, yeah, there's way too, yeah.
0: Well, you've cast Penelope Cruz, and I don't know—we've mentioned it before, Adam, that they're looking for that international flavor because they want that international money. Mm -hmm. And I think that has a little bit to do with it, but you guys are right. Cuss this the fuck out.
2: So Jack and company decide to commit mutiny against Blackbeard, and it seems like it's pretty successful as far as what's going to happen until Blackbeard walks out of his cabin like that scary, drunken stepdad going, All right, which one of you fucked up?
1: And then we get a sentient
2: ship? Was what? Isn't the sword
1: the thing that's magical? I guess. Yeah, because Gibbs says that the Black Pearl turned against him. Then don't we need an explanation for why this sword is fucking magic? I don't know why this ship is suddenly deciding that it's... I, oh, I, I can't stand this decision. Because it's never explained other than a hum of a sword and ships come alive and do what? I guess he thinks telepathically. He's poisoned the ivy for yard arms. Fuck, I don't know.
2: It doesn't make any sense. But, you know, we're introduced to Blackbeard played by Deadwood's Ian McShane, who is, comes from the Bill Nighy, Jeffrey Rush school of classically trained actors. I think he's a great casting choice. I think he gives a good performance. But these writers
0: have no clue what to do with Blackbeard. No, it's the novelty of having Blackbeard here was what brought people in. Once he's shown, it's like, okay, now what?
2: So it's the problem of like, okay, how evil are you? And there comes a point after this introduction where he doesn't feel like he's that much of a threat. He doesn't invoke fear like Davy Jones did.
0: No, like like you said, Adam, it's another powdered wig, right?
1: (laughs) It is, and it's for all the fear that he instills in everybody. And even for the part right here, he doesn't kill all the mutineers. Kill some of them, but not all of them. But I'll I'll say, I fucking love him as Blackbeard. I think Ian Shane is... Is something this movie desperately needed.
0: Now, Matt, didn't you say McShane went out for another part earlier? Yeah, they offered him Davy Jones. They offered him Davy Jones. So here he is back to make do, I guess. And he knows this is a billion-grossing franchise, so here he is. Yeah. And I like the choice, but he doesn't really do much with this part.
2: I don't think that's his fault. I blame the writers for not capitalizing on this and not making him... As scary as he could be. Because, yeah, we know he wants the Fountain of Youth. All right, so I'm going to talk about the worst thing in the movie, this fucking missionary he's got on his ship.
0: Before, before you do that, I want to say that Disney put out a movie, God, when me and Adam were kids. It was called Blackbeard. One of the scariest freaking things I'd seen. You already have that character in lore. And you bring him here for this. And I, I agree with you, Matt. I'm not blaming Ian McShane at all. Ian McShane has done so many good things. And here he is trying to make chicken salad out of chicken shit. I'm not blaming him. What I'm saying is, you have this character, and if you have nothing to do with him, why bring him here? Because that earlier Disney film gave me nightmares as a kid. Do something like that. Do something like you did with Barbosa in that first film.
2: Oh, absolutely. And Blackbeard doesn't kill all the mutineers, as he said. He puts one on a rowboat and burns him to smithereens because this guy watched Prometheus and didn't realize <laughs> all I have to do is just steer to the right or steer to the left. He just keeps going straight. This boat's got a flamethrower. <sighs>
0: That effect is cool though I'm not going to knock that effect I, I think that's pretty cool When he uses it
1: It is And I assumed That it would matter By the end of this film It doesn't you're right. <laughs> it's not used again.
2: No, oh, it's just here because the the missionary can give him shit for being a bad person, which is the only note Sam Claflin has given for this entire movie. He's so bad in this movie that it makes me retroactively hate the Hunger Games movies even more. Because <laughs> they want him to be Orlando Bloom so badly. I know.
1: See, it's funny. Like, I kept looking at him, and I went, is that Ni- I don't remember Nicholas Holt being in this franchise. <laughs> That's exactly who it was till I looked it up, and I realized, oh, God, we have discussed this guy. He was Finnick.
2: So, this is also where it gets really confusing. So, apparently, his daughter brought the missionary on board to try to save his soul, even though Blackbeard's like, I have no interest in that.
1: <sighs>
2: I don't understand why any of these characters are doing anything.
1: The writer strike might have really, really hampered, but you know what? They get a good script before you start fucking filming, and I, I hate so many giant studios because of this. They get a date, they get an outline, and then they start. But there's something, too, by the end of this film about the religious aspect of it, and... Clearly, that's one of the reasons this missionary is here. I gotta say, missionary position made me laugh. (laughs) (laughs) But you brought religion into this for two different reasons, and those religions also never pay off or face
0: off. But you know what? You you bring up a point, Adam. You bring up the fact that they made a date, and then they worked to meet it. By this point, when the first Pirates had come out, there was no Marvel. There was no real comic book films to compete against. By the time this movie had come out, we were right in the midst of Phase 1 of Marvel. We already talked about Thor coming out a few weeks before. They were competing at this point, and... When you're in a studio and you're competing against something that has come out and is the new big thing, you have to fight and you have to make sure that you do something that is different yet can appeal to that same audience. And... I don't think they do either of that here. And Marvel, by this point, we were one year away from the Avengers, and Pirates comes out after a five-year hiatus, and what does it do? There's nothing here to make it really stand out to me against that whole Marvel universe that was started around this time.
1: Yep. and think about it. They were fighting against Paramount at that point, Paramount Universal. Yeah. So they were trying to dominate the summer again because for the last little bit, it had been the Dark Knight franchise and this new upcoming Marvel Cinematic Universe. Disney was doing okay, but their live action films that did not have depth in it had some issues. Tron Legacy was a victim of that. And Was their, John
2: Carter before this or after this?
1: I believe it was before. They feast or famine when it comes to their live action films. They'd earned a billion dollars or they lost hundreds of millions.
2: Well, speaking of losing, Blackbeard tells Jack that you are going to take me to the Fountain of Youth or else I will use this voodoo doll and just eviscerate you because he holds it against the fire and Jack starts to feel it. So they also reference Blackbeard's actual historical death where he was beheaded.
0: Mm-hmm. Indie! That's what I thought of with that <laughs> voodoo doll, <laughs> um, so, which we'll be getting to in a couple months. Well,
2: speaking <laughs> of Indie, the thing with the chalice is that's fucking Last Crusade. Yes. It sure is. Yeah, absolutely it is. So we got, you know, Temple of Doom. Type voodoo ooga-booga shit, as Garrett called it. And there's some CG in this that's on par with what you'd see in Crystal Skull, but we'll get to that later. So speaking of foreshadowing, we then cut back to Gibbs of Barbosa, and they talk about how in order to get to the Fountain of Youth, they have to cross mermaid-infested waters, to which all the men on the ship go, oh, can we just die now and get it over with? Back to Jack and Angelica where she somehow knows the entire ritual of the Fountain of Youth where you have to get Tear of a Mermaid and there's two chalices where the person who drinks the one with the tear basically sucks the life out of the second person. So in order to acquire the Fountain of Youth, you need a sacrifice of some kind. Because, again, it can't just be as simple as you drink from the cup and you live forever.
1: Nope. You, <laughs> Garrett, you just said it. so When it came to the script, they chose poorly. I mean, and not, if she has all the answers... Why did we get Daddy Sparrow half an hour ago? She's just reiterating everything we already learned.
0: This film, this franchise, is big on repeating the same point over and over and over again. Yeah. X marks the spot, and they just keep stabbing
2: it with a shovel. It's like they can't dig themselves out. And to make shit even more convoluted, it's really weird how the second movie and the third movie really, more so the third, the supernatural. But Blackbeard just has shrunk the black pearl, and they never explain how he did that.
1: No, I do love seeing the ships in a bottle. I think that is a great visual. Yeah, I'm with Adam. Somebody had an amazing idea. An artist conceptually did some amazing, you know, we discussed this last week. There's some amazing conceptual artwork that then they writ perfectly, but it's not fleshed out, and that's such a shame. No, all the
2: credit goes to the production designers and the people who did all the concept art, because the writers don't really give any weight to how or why these things can happen. Whether it's the magic sword, whether it's the ships being shrunk, all of it is just paid lip service, which is literally what, also what happens to these pirates when they encounter mermaids in the next scene. So Blackbeard uses them as bait, where he puts them on a canoe. They're held at gunpoint and told to sing, which summons a mermaid. Who I thought was Amanda Seafried for two seconds and then I realized it wasn't
1: because she looked so similar. Oh my god, I did too. I thought totally. suddenly I thought suddenly we were doing late Mr. Rob. I was excited.
0: What's crazy about this is the same studio that brought us Splash mm-hmm. and brought us a little mermaid has turned them into these vampire slash mermaid things. And like I said last week, this was the only thing I remembered from this movie were mermaids. And one of these people falls in love with one of them. And I want to think of Splash a lot towards the end. But here, I thought this was nuts to take ariel and turn her into this creature when he sticks his his head under the water and she just turns into that vampire face i'm like holy shit this should be from fucking fright night this is crazy (laughs) but that draws back to what mermaids started out as well they're basically hybrids of
2: mermaids and sirens
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know what? And this series has done that. We talked about with the Kraken. They take this lore from thousands of years ago and they're bringing it into this film. I think that's a good idea. Honestly, I think mermaids are a good idea. I think it's good to make a threat like this. And when they're on screen, they are fucking memorable. I'll tell you that. When they're swimming around and they're threatening these, these sailors, like it is menacing and it is scary. And I like that feeling. It's the only time in this movie where I felt that same way I felt with Verbinski, where Verbinsky brought some tension from his days of doing the ring into the movie it doesn't last very long but i do like this set of scenes oh this is the best I, scene in the movie
1: i also really like a lot of the way that it's shot when it pans underwater not when it transitions completely not when it wipes to underwater but when you have half above of half below when you get that scene like we've talked about before and just it's shot great you get the beauty above slowly pans down you see the fins underneath and the transition from these beautiful women to I I don't get the fangs I think that was a I don't know why they're vampires but that's a choice (laughs) but great scene and there hasn't been a horror element in this film like we got in all the other ones it sure as hell brings it here
2: well they compensate for it here and that's the only scene that really has any tension to it because so much of this movie is just people walking around until they (laughs) find shit Um,
0: I was shocked at how much of that is in this movie I thought there was more action than there is
2: this is your one big set piece until the yeah and these mermaids have spider-man webs where they're they could shoot stuff out of their wrist and just fling people forward they're basically in the fourth harry potter they're the creatures that live underwater in the lake when harry has to go under there and rescue hermione But one Mermaid gets captured, and this is the Splash meets Kara Knightley stand-in, her and the missionary are just the saddest excuse to try to find a romance to latch on to in this movie. I think both of them are underwritten, and it's the one plot thing where I just don't care. No. Just get the tear and move on. Why do you have to drag her through the entire goddamn jungle later on.
1: He brings nothing to it. I mean, he's reading these lines like he's reading lines. There is no chemistry between them whatsoever. They're trying to make these mermaids be a little more sexual. I mean, there's more nipple teasing I have not seen since I've watched Avatar, you know? (laughs) Oh, oh, this is fucking, uh, this is Beowulf with English
0: (laughs) Oh, geez.
1: The chemistry, the romance that they're pretending, it is bad.
0: Yeah, this guy's no Tom Hanks. And I, I did find it interesting. I read a quote from Bruckheimer where he said that he didn't want any mermaids with fake tits because <laughs> oh. what, what mermaid has cosmetic surgery, which I thought was an interesting way of casting these chicks. I and agree with him. Yeah. I mean, he's not wrong. It was just kind of funny that he would come out with that. And these girls are, they're beautiful and, and they're menacing. And then when we drag this one through the forest, I'm with you guys. I'm like, what the fuck are we doing here? Why are we building this? You had a beautiful scene of tension. And I will say, that scene was amazing. It was the most jolt I've gotten in this entire film. Why are you just going to bring it right the fuck back down?
1: Yeah,
2: well, speaking of bringing it back down, I love when Barbosa and Gibbs go on land and they see the ship just get destroyed by mermaids.
1: Ooh. I mean, just so you know, there's men at sea, and you look back, what do you hear? Seagulls nesting. And just watching that ship from a distance and realizing how vicious and powerful they could be. Great little scene in the distance.
2: And this ties into my theory, that the transition where we cut from it's raining and miserable to the sunniest of skies and scenic Hawaii with Blackbeard. Basically, this is the Lost World Jurassic Park, where they're just walking through the jungle trying to find something.
1: It is the two towers of the Pirates franchise.
2: They're walking through the jungle and they say, oh, we need fresh tears for the ritual. So that's the excuse they come up with to keep this mermaid in a fucking fish tank. <laughs> this movie... It, it, it's amazing that they had, I get the writer's strike played a big component, but there's no, okay, why is there a ritual? Who came up with this ritual? Did Ponce de Leon solve this? Clearly not, he's not alive, but just, I'm asking way too many questions. And I'm upset that the movie does not feel the need to justify its own answers.
0: Matt, what you're saying is there's no through line. There is nothing bringing them from this point to the next point to the last point. It's all circumstantial. And here we have Sparrow again in every single one of these fucking scenes roaming around being more annoying than ever, as we mentioned before. And there's just nothing with this movie to grasp onto. With Will and Elizabeth, there was something with Jack in the background that there was I I enjoyed those three playing off each other. And that might be part of the problem, too, is that who is Depp playing off of here? There's nobody real consistent. And we have this fake Tom Hanks going after this mermaid and everything else going on. The the tension is released at this point. There's nothing happening that I like.
1: It's like Johnny Depp isn't even not only is he not playing off of another actor in the scenes, he's not playing off of anybody when the scene where he goes and blows up the lighthouse. Don't know why. But when it turns into the evil dead with all these hands going through the boards as he's running across, pay attention. There is no one else there on a beach full of people when he finally gets a little bit of a scene. It's it's nuts. Yeah, it transitions to them walking over lava fields in fucking Hawaii for a minute. Yeah.
2: And now, clearly, they changed locations, because these are not the same exterior shots that we used for the the mermaids or or anything like that. Because now it's like they're in the jungles of Peru, basically, if you look at the landscape. So they break open the mermaid cage, and she grows legs. Splash. Ariel's sitting here going, what the fuck? You know, I had to make a deal with Satan to get that. But...
0: (laughs) Oh, fuck Ariel. It's Madison who's pissed at this point.
1: (laughs) It is literally splash rules.
0: Yeah.
2: The only thing that makes a splash is when Blackbeard throws the voodoo doll off the side of the cliff to entice Jack to go get the chalices. (laughs) He takes the compass as a bargaining chip, which, oh my God, the more the movies use this compass, the more convoluted it becomes.
1: Oh, God, this fucking compass. compass. If he knows the compass is going to lead him, why didn't he just kill Jack and take it? It's almost like they forgot that this compass is here. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because it shows up twice for about five seconds each.
2: Jack jumps off the side of the cliff to go get the chalices, then cut to Gibbs and Barbosa also in the jungle, although it's nighttime. So, again, the passage of time in this movie and how it's illustrated is freaking terrible.
0: I was so confused.
2: What was clear as day five minutes ago is now dark and Mm foggy. That goes on to Ponce de Leon's ship. Barbosa's already there, and he says we cannot move at the same time because it's Jurassic Park 3 when they're in the plane.
1: <laughs> Can somebody tell me how a one-legged, peg-legged man climbed up a cliff to get into this ship? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that bugs me. And maybe it's because I'm just not enjoying Marbles. But I'm like, what the fuck? Oh, you know what? This, this is the one part where they did have an Easter egg to the ride. That pirate that's dead in the bed looks exactly like the pirate in the ride that's in the bed. Oh, okay. I will give this one. And you know what? While they're laying next to him, it made me smile. So the little things like that for somebody who you know enjoys the ride, it, it does matter. Wish we had a little more.
0: But I was going to say, there's nothing else for you to smile at. Mm-mm. So, but if it's was... this,
1: but you get them together, they're in this ship, and uh-huh. I understand it's candlelight, I understand that it's gonna be dark, but don't shoot it where it's almost invisible to see. It looks yeah. shitty, you know, go goody, have some freaking light shine off gold bullion and shit
0: and I have to ask too and I, and I know I kind of alluded to this earlier but does Rob Marshall bring any love of that ride like we, we heard all about Gore Verbinski's love for this ride but is Rob Marshall bringing anything this had to have been an addition by the writers because Rob Marshall doesn't know exactly of the spirit behind that ride he doesn't know exactly the spirit of what he's working with here he's working with an actor who's over egoed. he's got his ego through the roof and all these other actors are kind of playing off of him in not an entertaining way is there any love being brought to this project other than we know when we release it we're going to make over a billion dollars
1: I just think he's He's brought in to shoot. Like, I yeah. think that's it. I think he's just a higher yeah. shooter.
0: Yeah, he's a director for hire. And this isn't a guy, we mentioned it. I mean, he's not an unrespected director. This guy has made millions of dollars off Chicago and everything else. He hasn't made bad films. This is a guy who is experienced, but with a production like this and on water and everything else and working with Johnny Depp again, what exactly are you bringing to it?
1: Yeah, and he, he came back to work with Disney even after this. He wasn't even done at the pay well. house. Yeah, he worked with Johnny Depp again.
2: For two scenes. (laughs) But because the movie needs to run even longer, it's revealed that the Spanish have already taken the chalices, so now we have to go get them back, because this (sighs) movie needed to be even longer. (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) So in order to do so, Jack and Barbosa sneak into the camp, and they, again, just... The the first movie in particular does such a great job of foreshadowing and dropping lines to set the table for what's going to happen later. Here, Barbosa just flat out says, if I stab anybody with this sword, they get poisoned and die. Yeah. So they take the chalices, and then we cut back to Blackbeard, who just decides, you know what, tie up the mermaid. We're going to pretend to kill Fennec, which she's fucking stupid because clearly there's no blood on that sword when he gets stabbed. And apparently these two were in love enough to where she would cry for a guy that she just met less than a day ago. Yep, here's that Force Love story. Jack and Barbosa are tied up, and Barbosa uses his pedal leg to drink out of.
1: <laughs> Funny, because it's pirates hit rum in the pedal rib- leg. When Jack and Barbossa are together here. I have some fun. You know, when they fight back-to-back, I enjoy them together. It's a nice little reprieve from me not enjoying myself. I'm laughing and smiling.
2: Well, this is also the only time where they really capture the zany spontaneity of Jack Sparrow's fighting. When Mm -hmm. he's swinging around in the trees That they're fighting the Spanish. When they tie the guys together. Uh, it's actually fun to watch. It's serviceable, but again, just I'm missing the heart that Verbinsky brought. You really felt like everything was storyboarded and conceptualized before they started shooting. Here, it doesn't have that same energy. Jack goes back. How's that for some really bad rhyming?
0: And trades the... You should have f- written this movie.
2: Yeah. Trades trade the chances <laughs> for a pig, and he says, do you have any idea how long it took me to find this pig? He's a terrible negotiator, because Blackbeard just says, okay. They realize that the drop of water literally has a fucking X in it to explain where the Fountain of Youth comes from, because they have to enter the cave.
1: <sighs> but it doesn't. Like, it points to a crack, and I'm like, okay, they gotta go through it. But no, all they had to do was look over the edge of this cliff and see that there was... I don't fucking know. This dew went upwards. It's
2: it's literally mountain dew.
1: (laughs) But it's more irritating when they get inside, because the rules change. Oh, God.
2: For a movie that's pretty lackadaisical with explaining shit, this is a step too far. But they basically enter a portal where the fountain of youth is sitting in heaven, basically. (sighs) But,
1: okay, we see Jack after he just says the words and suddenly the water shows up, but it appears above their head. He reaches up and ascends into it. I say, there's a religion storyline that they did not flesh out here. But then everybody else can do the same thing enough that when the Spanish army shows up, they can bring banners and whole fucking armadas (laughs) through this fucking water in the sky.
2: How'd they get in without the chalices? (sighs) No time for plot, Dr. Jones. We have to to keep this shit going. (laughs) Because not only does Blackbeard's crew show up, Barbosa's crew shows up, the Spanish show up, and I half expected a giant cell block tango to start happening because the way it's composited, it looks like it's going to be a big musical number.
1: (laughs) You put cell block tango. I literally wrote down the tango mori. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, this is what Adam talked about with the religious component, because the Spanish are the ones who are like, we're here to destroy it because it fits in the face of God. You have a missionary on board trying to save Blackbeard's soul. I can see they clearly had something in mind, but this must be the plot that was really hamstrung by the writer's strike.
1: You get the Spain versus England, like Catholics versus Protestants. You have something there. And either they were scared to write it in the draft that they had to start shooting with, or they pussy out at the end. Then cut the lines where they discuss it, because it doesn't do anything. And by the way, destroying a fountain doesn't destroy the frickin' water that's coming out of the fountain, people. That's not how it works.
2: Yeah, you mm. have to dry out the water supply or something more clever. But the most convenient thing possible, apparently the mermaids have a direct route to the fountain <laughs> as well because she just shows up, gives them the chalices after they've already been stepped on.
1: Yeah, these waters are deep enough for the mermaids to survive, and apparently that means that they're subterranean tunnels of water that go through this entire outlet, which, you know what, that would have been the way to do it. Have her escape and show up at the end. Yeah. You know, and then get the tear that way. Have her escape through one of these giant swamp things type holes that we saw earlier.
2: Yeah, would be nice. For a climax, this is. It's yo ho hum. <laughs>
1: mm hmm. <laughs> You got a four-way battle. You couldn't pull off a three-way battle. Having this go four ways, there's too much shit going on.
0: Way too much. You and know. this isn't, as you guys mentioned, this isn't nearly as fun as hell. Even last week, I was down on the majority of that film, but I said the the final quarter of that film is very fun. There's none of that here. We're going through the motions. We have so much going on and so much I just don't care. And at the about. same time,
1: they're still trying to pull the Bond moves of little switches at the end. Uh-huh. You've already overplayed that so many Times, fool me six times, I'm fucking mad. <laughs>
0: you know? Yeah.
2: So, Jack. And again, this is also where the writers don't know what to do, where he just, he pretends to switch the cups, but clearly he didn't do that because Blackbeard winds up dying. So they mention nothing about the Fountain of Youth curing poison or scars or anything like that. I guess the writers lucked out on that.
1: It suddenly is the Holy Grail. It doesn't just make you live longer. It fucking heals you.
2: (laughs) It cures everything. So Barbosa says, I will take your sword as my recouping my missing leg. And he takes over Blackbeard's ship which has his old clothing in it somehow. He says, all right, we're going to Tortuga because I need to get my rocks off.
1: <laughs> I enjoy him back as a pirate when he's got the bandana on, he's presented mm-hmm. with his hat. Let's go to Tortuga. That is the Barbosa that I've been missing.
2: Mm-hmm. So Jack decides to maroon
1: Angelica on a deserted island. <laughs> <laughs> Throwback to what's happened to Jack a couple times.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I've been really harsh on Johnny Depp with good reason, because apparently he just took over this production. But I will say this scene here, I actually giggled quite a bit at. I enjoyed the rapport between these two. These two are obviously friends from before. It really does work in this scene. This is like the one scene where I feel like I've gotten the jack that I really like. I
2: the time is actually really funny. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean,
0: okay, she tells him, I'm pregnant with your kid. First of all, how would she know she's pregnant with his kid? Like, <laughs> all of that is like, okay, wh- where are we going with this here? I guess we're going to see next week. But I was dumbfounded by that. But still, this scene was very fun.
2: So, leaves her on an island, reunites with Gibbs, he tells him why didn't Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait, wait. Before that, can I go back? <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Because you talked about the battle, but we didn't talk about— <laughs> the beginning of apparently philip is in love with this mermaid so much that god he's going to tom hanks it dive in the water and swim with her and we never see them again yeah and he drowns <laughs> three minutes later <laughs> give me the spoiler does he show up next week no okay. no he got the bends yeah that whole
2: subplot i would have asked that entirely oh god yeah that whole stuff yeah really? and rob
1: marshall is doing the little mermaid remake which is the funniest thing. Is he
0: really? Yes.
1: He's doing the remake of The Little Mermaid, which is funny because of all the mermaids we get in this, there's not a single redhead, which no. drives me nuts. And then this guy that plays the missionary, his big thing in the Hunger Games was he was a major swimmer. Yes. And mm. that's what his threat was.
2: So Jack and Gibbs... Reteam team up, and Jack's like, yeah, who's to say I won't live forever? There's other avenues. But they realize they have the Black Pearl, but they don't know how to unshrink it.
1: I love this idea of this bag full of ships Gibbs took them all when he's looking at yeah. the ship, and I, I really like the thought process of what they have here.
2: And he uses the compass. That's how he located to get the Black Pearl back. But they sort of leave it open-ended for another one, because their new mission is to basically undo whatever Blackbeard did on the Black Pearl. As credits do roll, but there is a post-credits scene. Is there? There, God damn it. So the voodoo doll washes up on the island where Angelica is, and that's it.
1: Oh, okay. She's at beach and that fucking voodoo doll. I mean, this feels almost like a standalone antholic version of it, but it's clear that they wanted something if this was going to kick off a new trilogy, that this was a starting point.
2: Yeah. And enjoy this scene because uh, Penelope Cruz is not in the next movie whatsoever. Oh, she's not? No, but her husband is. So that does it for Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Curious to see how our scores match up on this one. I doubt we're all going to be the same. And if it is, then our own podcast is cursed. So, (laughs) Garrett, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you give Pirates for?
0: Ooh, I'm going first, huh? Okay, Matt has already previewed a future retrospective. I'm going to preview it as well. What we're going to prove with this podcast in the coming years that we're in existence is you cannot take a background character and make him the center of the story. Look up Solo, that win battle as well as this. There is something to the mystique of Jack Sparrow that is completely taken away when he is front and center. And that could do with the ego of the star, as has been outlined here. It could do with some pretty bad writing where it's like, look, he's the poster child. We got him for $55 million. Let's use him. Or it could be a director who is subservient to every one of his wishes. We will never know because we were not on that set. What I do know is what is on screen. And what is on screen is about as equivalent to what we got last week. But the difference is last week, as I mentioned, had a lot of fun towards the end. I really got into how they wrapped everything up. Here, there are moments, but there is not one set of scenes that are put together that I look at and think, God, that was a nice set of scenes there. There's one or two here and there. Mermaids attacking, that scene is very tension-filled. Hell, I would even take a horror movie like that. Some moments with Sparrow are fine, but too much Sparrow, too much convoluted writing, too much of just taking characters that I loved and just pissing them away in front of me. And this movie made so much money, and I am baffled about that. This should have killed the fucking franchise in its tracks. But we're going to get another one next week. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But this was a pretty piss-poor experience for me, I got to say. And I remember, I remember the mermaids, and I remember kind of digging the subplot between (laughs) Philip and this mermaid, Serena. And I watched it here, and I just want to puke. This is a pretty bad, big-budget movie. I'm going to go four. Yeah, four out of ten for uh, Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Yeah, four on ten for movie number four. Adam, i got to ask you the question. As someone who
2: expressed that they thought this was their favorite, do you feel the same way as you watched it this time?
1: Boy, no, I do not. Maybe I didn't analyze it enough the first time. Maybe I was happy to see it back and a little bit different. Maybe I was hypnotized by Penelope Cruz and Ian McShane. But this one is not enjoyable, and that's a shame. That's not to say it's horrible. That's not even to say it's necessarily bad, but... I can't say that it's good. It's got some good scenes. It's got some good moments. It's got some good shots. But it has less of those than everything else. The moments where Johnny Depp is alone acting without any of his co-stars – is pretty apparent in this, and I think the movie suffers for it. I enjoy Ian McShane as Blackbeard. I wish we got more of him. I wish we got him the way that we got Davy Jones, because I think he's a worthy Dylan, and I think McShane, when he's given the opportunity, is menacing, but he's not given it enough. And I think... Somebody who demands he cannot be overshadowed wanted to make sure of that. Penelope Cruz is good. I remembered her being better, but she's good enough. I like Gibbs so much in this film. Uh, He's delight when he's on screen. He breaks the tension. Barbosa, I wish we had more of... The Barbosa we had the last couple films. Or I wish that we had his turn earlier. Maybe when he comes across the Spanish, that at that point he sabotaged the English and joined that side to be first. I just think that they kept him as an employee of the British monarchy for just way, way too long. It's such a step down that that's where it's anger-inducing, but I don't think that the ship has fully sunk yet. I think it's taken on water, but I think it will be sinking, so I'm not going to be too harsh on this, because I do think there's some enjoyment to be had throughout. I think there's some smiles. I think there's some good parts here, but much like the musical cues that they kind of overdo, They overdo Jack Sparrow too much in this film. Yeah, there was a movie to be salvaged here, but they did not do it on screen for what I watched. I'm not going to go quite as low as Garrett. I'm going to go a little bit higher and give this one a five.
2: Wow. I have the same score written down as one of you, but I'm not going to say who it is just yet. So for me, I have to say this is a lot like, to use Adam's analogy of a ship taken on water... I think they hit the proverbial iceberg with this movie, where they had opportunities to get away from it, but they just kept steering the course and paid the price. And that iceberg is Jack Sparrow. I understand the rationale of making this the Jack Sparrow show because of how popular that character had become, but by doing so, he lost all of his mystique and all of his charm. I find so much of him in this movie just just be obnoxious. And he feels like literally an imposter Jack Sparrow. I don't feel like this is the same character that we've seen in the first three. But there's a key ingredient that's missing. And I think it's Gore Verbinski. Say what you want about the sequels he did. The third one in particular, neither of us were overly enthusiastic about. But at the end of the day, there was a clear vision. And it was a movie made with sincerity and passion. This to me feels like a tax write-off for Disney to try to make a quick buck to counteract some of their mistakes with live action. So, looking at the third movie, which I gave a five and I accused of being too bloated, this one I think is the opposite where it's, despite being as long as it is, there's not enough here to really justify that runtime. There could have been with the religious droppings that they have scattered throughout, and there's enough different sides, but because everything is so shorthand with the writing, it leaves a lot to be desired. So because of that, I think this is a bit of a step down from the last movie. So I'm going to go with Garrett and give this a four on 10 as well.
0: You know, what I thought a lot of while watching this, Matt. Remember when we did the Hannibal series and we said Anthony Hopkins, he won an Oscar for Silence of the Lambs. And by the time we got to Red Dragon, it's like not even a hint of that character that we saw before. That's how I feel here. Although obviously not with the ego that Johnny Depp has in this. But when you take that character, you said it exactly, take the mystique away by putting it front and center. It that does not make for an enjoyable experience. And God, I, I remember having so much more fun with this movie than I did. Kind of like last week where I said I thought the third one was fantastic before we watched it for this podcast. This was the shortest movie, but you guys are right. It seemed like it went on for five hours.
1: You know, There's one more thing, and I forgot to mention it while we were doing it. There's this kid that continuously shows up throughout this movie to drop like a line here and there. It happened like four times. I took that to be the son of Will and Elizabeth, and I know where the next movie goes, but I had a feeling that they were teasing up something that they did not decide to actually go ahead and fully tease in this film. Did you get that at all?
2: You know what's funny? I looked at that kid, and I I was like, I've seen him before. Mm -hmm. And he was Peter Pan in Once Upon a Time.
1: That's where I'd see him. So
2: I'm like, oh, that's where I've seen him before. But you're right that there's this cabin boy that is also prisoner, so I could see having Elizabeth's precociousness is why he gets captured. So that would have been an interesting reveal to have, but you did have to wait six years for that to come, (laughs) because that's the gap between this movie and the last film. Is this six years? Yeah, we waited.
1: Hmm. It's
2: a four-year gap between three and four and a six-year gap between four and five.
1: That's ten years just for those two films to get done. Damn.
2: New directors.
1: The next film was done by a
2: duo of directors and a new writer. Wow. Johnny Depp, although I think his star power had waned even more in the six years since four. But they did say they were going to bring it back to the first one. Well,
0: I remember when they did this one, They said this was the start of a whole new trilogy. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as surprising when we heard that they were making a fifth one because this one had made over a billion dollars. You said it, Matt. So why it took so long, who the fuck knows? But- that's what I remember Bruckheimer saying was we are gearing up for a whole new trilogy here starring Jack Sparrow and God this next one I have only heard what you guys have disclosed on these podcasts you've littered it here and there apparently Javier Bardem's in it apparently we are seeing the kids of Will and Elizabeth and we're getting Johnny Depp I have no clue what to expect but after this one I gotta say by the time the first one was over I was like God bring me more now this one's over one more week I'm starting to feel like Matt in Transformers run I'm like, oh, God, not another one.
2: <laughs> well, your, your skepticism was echoed by myself. Six mm-hmm. years is a long time. I was soured on Johnny Depp like one of Barbosa's apples. and <laughs> They had to find some way to sucker me in because they said Javier Bardem was like, fuck, now I have to go see it. Because uh, he's one of my favorite actors, especially when he plays villains, uh, which is sadly all he tends to do nowadays.
0: Mm-hmm. Although,
2: ironically, he is in the, the Little Mermaid remake. Oh, is he really? He's playing Ariel's father. He's playing King Triton. Oh, jeez. So yeah, the Mouse House knows how to employ, but they did say it was advertised Orlando Bloom was in the new one. Mm -hmm. Keira Knightley was a question mark going into the movie. They they didn't confirm or deny, but there were reasons for concern and there were some reason for optimism because it was basically a whole new creative team, directors and writers. But the question was, could Johnny Depp keep this shit going or was our thoughts going to be highlighted more there remains to be seen but we got one more movie to go and then we'll talk about sort of the future of this series if it is actually going to have one but until next time when we talk about pirates of the Caribbean dead men tell no tales if you fall and die then she will get her chance to podcast thank you guys
0: 10 years I devoted me. Ten years I looked after those who died at sea, and finally, when we could be together again, you weren't there.
1: Thank you listening to this episode of The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast. Exclusively here at Percolated Media. We're not out of this yet. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
2: Destroying my civic duty, sir.
1: And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. You have a date to pay. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts.
0: ship cannot be crewed by two men. You'll never make it out of the bay. Son, I'm Captain Jack Sparrow. Savvy.
1: The Three Men and a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Come to join me crew lad, welcome aboard. Edited by Garrett.
2: Do you know how long I've been waiting for this moment?
1: Voiceovers by Adam.
0: I will not have that smile on your face as I strike you down.
1: The Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. I uh, apologize if I seem forward, but I must speak my mind.
2: I gotta go. And this movie was directed by Rob Marshall. New cast. Uh, let me start over. New director.
1: I felt like swimming in the shallow waters at this point. I remember Dead Man's Chest. Dead Man's Chest? No, yeah. At World's End. Wait, whatever. Part three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> God
0: damn it. After At World's End, it was set by everybody. Orlando Bloom, Kira Knightley. Um, God damn, what's the name of the director again? Gore Verbinski. Gore, Gore Verbinski. It was said by Gore Verbinski. I am still baffled that Alice in Wonderland made
2: all that much money, as he alluded to, but I do think the 3D component is a big player. It was really the first one post-Avatar that they really advertised as, oh, you have to go see this in 3D. Huge
1: fan
0: but, of that first one. Oh, good, okay, so We can fight can about that when we do Tim Oh, Burke, my God. I, I think if there's anything left after Star Wars, we'll go for that one.
2: <laughs> uh, like, I... He's going to be the guy who likes Burns Play to the Apes, too. I'm telling you right now.
0: That's (laughs) me. Oh, Oh, perfect. God. That's me. No one's going to be standing
2: here. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to look like in three when they all pull guns on each other. That's (laughs) For the next set of shows when we get to them. But you're right about the tourist. (laughs) And it was cute in the third one. It is painful to watch him in this movie because he is obviously on something to the point to where when they cut and he is gone i thought he just passed out and they kept rolling
0: who's this i'm sorry keith richards oh, this is, keith oh richards. that's okay we're at keith richards okay yeah to he be- there's just nothing with this movie to grasp onto with the will story um what was karen knightley's character's name elizabeth. okay with will with will and elizabeth like there was something the Spanish show up, and I half expected a giant
2: cell block tango to start happening, because the way it's composited, it looks like it's going to be a big musical number.
1: <laughs> you put cell block tango. I literally wrote down the tango mori.
2: <laughs> if Garrett had actually she- seen Chicago, he'd understand that.
0: Yeah, you guys are speaking Chinese at this point.
2: No, that was the last movie. Oh. <laughs> at least this one, they didn't offend any Spanish centers.
0: Yeah, that's true. <gasps> Mm-hmm. So it wasn't as surprising when I heard they were making a seventh one, especially since that's that. Or I'm sorry, when they told, when they when we heard that they were making a fifth one. Until next time, when we talk about
2: Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Men Tell No Tales. If you fall and die, then she will get her
0: chance to podcast. Thank you guys. Oh boy! All right, take five. Come back and talk about a better movie. <laughs> alright see you guys in 5